The book of Daniel, we're in the book of Daniel still. We're in chapter 9, and we're still dealing with uh, the prayer, the very long prayer that Daniel prayed. By the way, have you ever read the prayer that Nehemiah prayed a few years later uh, in uh, Nehemiah chapter 1? It's, I don't know if they had plagiarism laws in those days, but uh, it's the same heart cry to the Lord. You ought to read it and compare those two prayers. Um, beginning in verse, I can see what that says, 23. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me with swift flight as the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I told you last week that this particular chapter was divided into two parts. First is the prayer, and then the prophecy. I was wrong. Mark Davis divided it into three parts. And so we have the prayer, we have some events in the middle, and then the prophecy in the uh, last part of the chapter. Um, the prayer is kind of interesting. We looked at it in quite a bit of depth last week, still not seeing everything that was there. But let me just take a few minutes and summarize it for you. The prayer that Daniel prayed was a result of his own contemplation and study of the Scripture. He was reading the prophecy of Jeremiah, and he knew that the prophecy of Jeremiah had been written at the, before the Babylonian captivity began. Daniel is now in the midst of the Babylonian captivity, and he notices that quite a bit of time has passed. In fact, almost all of the 70 years have come and gone. And so Daniel knows that something else is in store for his people, but he doesn't know what. And so he has a lot of anxiety and concern. And so as he studies the Scripture, he studies not only a, the book of Jeremiah, but he, he is also studying the law of Moses. And there in the law of Moses, he sees how God had predicted many, many centuries earlier what would happen if the people disobeyed. And so now his prayer is a broken-hearted prayer. It's a prayer in, in sackcloth and ashes. And after assessing the current situation, he realizes that there's no hope for Israel. What's left of Israel back in the land of Palestine has is, is been occupied and it's, nobody was left back there but the vine dressers and the plowmen and the keepers of sheep. Uh, they had pretty well been destroyed as a nation. There wasn't much hope for national revival there. And then he looked at the people in Babylon. So many of them had scattered out through Babylon and become quite comfortable. It's amazing how God's people can get comfortable in the world. When our Lord says, love not the world, nor the things of the world, if you love the world, the love of the, the, love of the Father is not in you. And yet they had gotten comfortable in Babylon. But the Lord had used that period of time to chasten them and to punish them for their awful sinfulness. And so with no hope for Israel and being in a desperate situation, Daniel begins to call upon the Lord. 
First, in studying the Word of God, the Law of Moses, the prophecies of Jeremiah, he looked at the Word of God, and then he had, as we've seen all through the book of Daniel, a right view of God. In that prayer, he calls God great and awesome. He is uh, recognizing God's magnitude, God's power, God's goodness. But he also refers to God as the covenant-keeping God. And there's a covenant that's on the table and has never been removed. The Mosaic Covenant was a promissory covenant. It was, a, was an obligatory covenant. If you do this, God said, I will do that. If you do this, I will do that. If you don't do this, then I will do this. And if you do this abominable sin, I will punish you. Did anybody read the chapter in Deuteronomy? Good for you. Yeah, there's a few of you that did your homework. And also in Leviticus. I bet there were things you noticed in there you hadn't seen before. Those are incredible curses that were come upon the people. And a large number of those curses had been visited upon God's people during this very Babylonian captivity. And so in reading in that and understanding that, he understood something about God. He understood that he was a covenant-keeping God, and he was a God of steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments. What did our Lord say? If you love me, keep my commandments. But there were a few other things that Daniel understood about God, and that is that he understood that God could and should be vindicated for his righteousness. Several times in the prayer, he says, the Lord, you are righteous. You are the source of righteousness. In fact, the very standard of righteousness is the very plumb line of the person of God himself. What is righteous is determined by what God is, and God is righteous. And the word righteous and just are interchangeably. In fact, it's the same word in the languages, and there you have this notion that God is right in all of his doings. So Daniel realized very quickly that God was absolutely right in what he had done in judging Israel. God is righteous to chasten Judah. And uh, he had justifies God's justice. And anytime you will hear true gospel preached, whether it's in the book of Romans or it's any other place, the true righteousness of God is exalted, manifest, and set forward. Any compromise of, uh, against the true righteousness of God as laid out in the Holy Scriptures is an affront to God. And that's exactly what had happened to the people. The people had sinned. They had committed these things. They had wandered away from God. They had acted perversely. Perversions always lead to God's punishment. Done, they had done wickedly in the sight. These are different words that are used in the original language. They had rebelled against God. If you think of God as a sovereign or the God as their king, they were rebels in that kingdom and they had gone their own way. And God had sworn an oath to curse them. And God lives by his oaths which is bad news when you come under the curse of God, but it is good news when you're under the blessing of God. And by the way, God had not only obligatory covenants in the Old Testament, you do this and I'll do that, with stipulations on each side, but He had promissory covenants as well. Promissory covenant is I'm going to do this. Yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to certainly do it. It's not going to fail. It's not going to fall. I don't care what you do. I don't care how much time passes. I don't care what goes on. I don't care about the circumstance. And I don't care what you think. God says, I'm going to do it. 
And one of the promissory covenants that stands out in Scripture overall is the covenant that God made to Abraham, that he was going to have his people, that he was going to take care of them, that he was going to have them a place to dwell, that they would have a great name, and that they would be a seed from among them that would be a blessing to the whole world. The promissory covenant given to Abraham was none other than the covenant that promised the coming of Christ. This is precisely where we are now in the life of Daniel. We're sitting here at a great pivot point. There's a sense in which Israel's history has kind of run its course. Not completely, but quite a bit. They've come out of Egypt. They've been in the wilderness. They've conquered Canaan land. They've had a, a, a theocracy and a, a, a kingdom in uh, in the land, the kingdom has divided. They've been chastened by the Assyrians. And then a hundred and something years later, now they've been exiled to Babylon. The, the, the curses, many of them have already befallen them. They have paid, as the scripture says, double for their wickedness. And, and now what? I mean, it looks like the whole scheme has worked its way out. Well, there's one more little promise that needs to be fulfilled. And that's the promise God told them that He would send them, that He would return them to their land, and He would give them the Messiah. And that's what's left. And that's what the next part of this particular chapter is about. It explains the approximate period of time in which it will be before Christ will come, before the Messiah will come. We're standing here now in the land of Babylon, and we're looking forward and there's a ton of predictive prophecy in the Old Testament about the coming of Christ. And if you look at things from the Old Testament perspective alone, the coming of Christ is one coming. When Messiah comes, He will do this, this, and this. We know that Messiah came in the person of Jesus Christ and did so many of those things and is now through His body on earth, the church, doing so many of those things. And some of those things yet will be accomplished. And one of them is that He would return. And so predictive prophecy does not leave God's people in the dark. Now, it leaves them in the shadows because some of those prophets, prophecies aren't easy to understand. They're hard to nail down. They're, 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 but, but, but you can get the gist of it. More than anything else, you know that behind the shadowy and sometimes obscure prophecy that comes is the full authority and might of God Himself who said, I will perform it. And usually the performance of God's promises are far outweigh and outshine the nature of His promises to start with. That's certainly true in salvation. God promises so much and then He gives so much more in salvation. And that's where Daniel is. And then it brings him to the place of confession. And that's what we saw last week is how he poured out his heart. He dressed in sackcloth and ashes and fasting and contrition. And, and he had, had wrought in his heart a godly sorrow. And he pleaded then for mercy. He pleaded for the mercy of God, realizing that he, as, as dynamic and wonderful a leader of the people as he was, he was not going to be able to do all of those things that need to be done. And neither would anyone else have the power. It's amazing to see the, 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 the uh, reduction in the great power of leadership. You've got Abraham and you've got Moses and David and Solomon and some of the great kings, but then you look at the leaders following the exile and they, they seem to be just a little more like us. They, they seem to be a little more limited, a little more human, a little more humble. 
And Zerubbabel heard the word of the Lord. It's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And that's why when you get to Ezra, Ezra was a patient teaching priest and prophet. And in this instance, Daniel comes to the point to where he is the one person that God is going to give this particular uh, prophecy to in order for God's people to have something to hang on to, a hope for the next 500 years approximately. So let's look at the prayer here and, and note just a few things of it. It follows very closely, obviously, to what's been happening. But it says here that he is praying and it says he is speaking in prayer. I don't want to let that go. Um, there is an absolute advantage to praying audibly, to articulating our prayers, to give verbal expression to our prayers. Most of the time we pray silently. We pray in our heart. We pray in our thinking. And that's nothing wrong with that. That's marvelous. That's where we need to be. We need to be continuing instant in prayer. But there's something in the Bible, several of the words for prayer are words that cannot be fulfilled unless you call out. You cry out. You speak. You plead. You lament. You beg and petition. And these things all require an articulation before God. We must remember that God is hearing us and we've asked Him to incline His ear toward us. Why would He need to incline His ear if we were just going to whisper a prayer every morning, whisper a prayer at noon, whisper a prayer in the evening? You know, He wants to hear the voices of His people raised in prayer. And in prayer there's praise and there's thanksgiving and there's all kinds of, uh, uh, of intercession that is done. And God wants to hear that. God, the Bible says that God dwells in the midst of His people's praise. So where there's a lot of praise of God going on, individually and corporately, you'll see the expression of God there in their midst. This is how God shows up. He shows up with the voice of people that are crying to Him. We know He's present. We know He's near. And so let's don't forget that this is the way Daniel was praying, and if you'll look at a lot of the other examples of prayer in Scripture, they pray similarly in, on many occasions. Not every occasion, but on many occasions. And so this uh, speaking and uh, praying and confessing his sin and doing all that, Gabriel shows up. Well, we've already seen Gabriel. He show up, showed up in the last chapter where he came to explain the uh, phenomenon of the ram and the goat and the horns on the goat and, and all of that. We looked at that vision. And Gabriel had helped Daniel sorted out. It's amazing to me that Daniel needed help in understanding these things. He was as limited in his view as we are ours. The messenger of the Lord came. And of course, the Gabriel is the messenger angel in the Bible. In fact, we'll probably hear about it in the next few weeks, uh, how that it's Gabriel that speaks to Zacharias concerning the promise of the coming of John the Baptist to be the forerunner of Christ. It was Gabriel that showed up to announce... Uh, everything that needed to be known to Mary, who was to expect the Christ child. And so Gabriel shows up, and it's interesting that what Gabriel says, the way he shows up, it says he showed up and he was, um, uh, came in swift, came to me in swift flight as the time of the evening sacrifice. Oh, let's don't miss that. Here's Daniel. This is amazing. This, Daniel has been in captivity for 70 years. He's been nowhere near the temple. 
And yet he still thinks in terms of the temple order of service. All these years he's been gone, but this is about the time of the day when they had the evening service, when they would bring in the, the animals for slaughter. There were prayers in the morning, prayers in the, in the middle of the day, but there were evening prayers. The mid-afternoon prayer time, the one that James and John went up to the temple, you remember, the, at the gate beautiful, that was an afternoon prayer, a three o'clock prayer. But then there were the evening, the, the setting of the sun, the vespers sacrifices. And it was about that time of the day when, the, when Gabriel showed up to speak to Daniel. And, it, and Daniel still thinks in terms of Mount Zion. Oh, I wish we could do that. I wish we could live on this earth with every bit of its interference and all of its worldliness and all of its care and woe that comes upon us. And yet when we think, we're thinking in terms of the holy things of God. Whatever happens, we're thinking in terms, our, our, our spiritual clocks are, are set to God's timetable. And it was the time of the evening sacrifice when, when Gabriel appears. And it said here that he, he came in swift flight. Uh, the, uh, the connotation there, according to some commentators, is that, that he showed up in a hurry. Uh, he was uh, fatigued. He was out of breath. He had just gotten there on time to speak. And so he comes to, to uh, Daniel to give Daniel uh, insight. He says, I've come to give you insight and understanding. Some translate that word insight, skill. I've come to give you skill and understanding. Well, here we now have the angel of God, which often in the Bible administered the revelation of God through the angels. God used the angels to be His messengers. They were involved in the giving of the law on the mountain, we're told. And they, from time to time, show up. And in the Old Testament, it was different times and different ways. Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verse 1 tells us that that's how God gave His revelation in the Old Testament. Just like in the New, He singled it down to one single time, the fullness of time, one single person, that which one is born of a woman and born under the law, Jesus Christ Himself. So Daniel receives this from the angel, and the angel is giving God's Word. And God's Word comes in, in at least two ways. Number one, it comes in revelation. That is, God self-discloses. He lets you know what He's thinking, what He wants. He lets you know what will happen and what will be. And so God gives direct self-disclosure of Himself. The Word of God is like this. It is breathed out by God. It is spiration. Spiration, the breathing out of God in disclosing Himself. But also, insight and understanding comes from another form, and that is the form of inspiration. Inspiration. And inspiration is given by God sovereignly, by His Spirit, to various individuals. In the, in the Old Testament, most of you know this. You know it well, because it's in our, in our uh, just the way we think. It's in the warp and woof, the way Presbyterian theology is, is, is structured. But the three great offices of leadership, which Christ fulfilled each one of them, in the Old Testament is prophet, priest, king. Right. I like peas. You know, I'm a Baptist preacher, so... It's easy. I like prophet, priest, and prince. 
You know, those are the three ways that God's good. But there was another person in Israel that you need to be aware of. It wasn't these men that occupied these offices, but there was also this, this thing that would come upon a person and it was God's gifting and it was very important in the life of Israel. In fact, it was vital in the life of Israel. And that was not only the prophet, the priest, and the king, but it was the sage. The sage. The sage is that person that has wisdom insight. God inspired them and structured their mind and their thought processes to the point to where they could understand things, the deep spiritual things of God, things that they needed to do. And there's a whole, uh, there's a whole uh, culture in Israel of these people. They weren't anointed and put into a particular office. They were just given the inspiration of the Spirit in order to do the work. And it was important that a priest be a bit of a sage, have wisdom. It was a pretty good idea for the prophet to be a bit of a sage, to have wisdom. And it was certainly advantageous for the king to have wisdom and be able to govern according to this wisdom. And so we see this in the Old Testament, beginning as early as the book of Job. The book of Job is a, is a, is a book of wisdom. In fact, it, it's such deep wisdom we don't grasp it sometimes, but it, it's in poetry form. It's one of the oldest writings that we have in Holy Scripture, and it gives us wisdom, profound wisdom into, into things. There was a, uh, also in the Old Testament, there's a town, Teman, and it was famous for its wise men and wise women. It was a place where wisdom seemed to dwell. There was a culture there of, of really uh, seeing the things of God uh, in, uh, in, in clear measure. You remember one of the tribes of Israel, Issachar, the son of Jacob and Leah, Issachar was uh, in his tribe. There were noted men in there who were men of wisdom. They, they could read the times and then know what to do. Boy, I wish we had more people like that around right now, don't you? They could read the times. They could see what time we were in. They, they could see things happening out here and people wouldn't scream, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. No, that's pretty clear vision of what's going on out there coming up shortly. And often in ancient Israel, they depended upon that. They would seek the wisdom of the wise men. One of the interesting things was Solomon, who was a king who really needed a lot of things. He needed a powerful army. He needed a powerful uh, administration. He needed a lot of things. But when he prayed, he prayed for what? Wisdom. He wanted God to give him wisdom that he could govern the people. So this, this uh, tradition of the sage or the wise person in Israel was not confined to just the official offices. Anybody, anywhere, at any time could have godly wisdom. And, and wisdom was a skill. It wasn't just so that you know. It wasn't that you were walking encyclopedia. It was that you had wisdom. You, you had knowledge but you had understanding of how it was to work and how it was to be applied. And we see that in our own day, you know, the difference between knowledge and wisdom. For example, um, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not ever putting it in a fruit salad. And, and that's, the, that's the thing that... that, that God's people needed so desperately at critical times, and Daniel had a double portion of this. He was the sagacious man in Babylon that could 
see the times. And just to sort of sketch it out, wisdom involves skill, as I said before, but it, it has a, a, a notion of sight, of eyes being open to be able to see things and to be able to discern things that differ and to be able to see shades of meaning, be able to understand nuance and things of that sort. That's, that's what the, the wise person had. And it was sight, it was, it was light and truth, and it was perspective on reality. But not only was there need to be sight in the wise person, but there needed to be different kinds of sight. There needed to be hindsight. They needed to know the history of how God had operated all throughout Revelation history. They need to know the whole redemption story up to that point in which they lived. They need to understand. They need to have, have hindsight, see the workings of God. The whole bent of the Old Testament, we see it even in this prayer. They're always looking back to some great event. The thing that sustained them for years is God had already delivered them from one exile out of Egypt. And now was it ridiculous to think that God would deliver them out of another exile in the future? But not only do, do they need hindsight, but they need uh, insight. Insight is that reasoning power that examines and understands motives. Most importantly, that understands causality, cause and effect. This is, this is a, a part of logic. It's a mind. It's something you can never lose. You are, you are lost in a sea of confusion without that special sagacious gifting of insight. And then you also need, and this is what our passage primarily is concerned with, you need foresight. The understanding that God gives that you can see predictably. Now, if you understand cause and effect, you can, you're a long way toward understanding in the natural world the future. You know what happens when certain things happen. When certain causes are in place, you know there's going to be certain effects and there's going to be consequences of it. And, and even from a human standpoint, we can have a good bit of foresight. But from the divine standpoint, when God gives special revelatory foresight, that's critical. And that's where we are here in our story of redemption, that God is giving them foresight. Uh, what's interesting to me is that uh, that sets your expectation. Your foresight sets your expectation. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're having expectation about God keeping His promises, God sending His Christ, God fulfilling the, the rule of all the other, God taking care of evil, God judging the wicked, God, God re rewarding the righteous, and all of these things that, that are yet to become. And the Christian life, to some extent, is a life of the mind. Boy, you couldn't tell it by most Christians today. Most people think that it's the, it's the, uh, the life of the, the viscera. <laughs> most people, they have to have a butterfly in their stomach before they think they've worshipped. Or they have to have some kind of chill or some kind of thrill. And hopefully not a spill. That's the way they live their lives. But the life of the believer is a life of the mind. Intellectual. It is our whole soul, it's our whole mind, it's our whole capacity to, to function and to think and to, and to operate within the creation that God has given us, A, and within the sinful world in which we now live due to the fall. And that's what happens. You say, Ron, I, I don't think I, I didn't ever get in Mensa, so I'm not sure I'm that smart to be that kind of... If any man lack wisdom, 
Let him ask of the Lord, and he will give liberally. You can be a wise person in the Lord and in the things of the Lord without having one single letter of an academic degree attached to you anywhere. The simplest child and the oldest saint can be sagacious when it comes to the things of the Lord. But you have to ask because it comes from the Lord. Ask of God and He will give you. Well, let me mention a couple of things and then we're through. Actually, just one more thing. Uh, notice this happened at the beginning. Uh, that, that's what he says here. He says, uh, At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. Did you catch that? When Daniel was just starting to pray, God sent the angel and put him on high gear to get there. Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things. I will answer before you call, says the Lord. These are quotations out of Jeremiah, by the way, and I think Daniel understood those and believed them and, and, and counted on them. And here's a, an example. Gabriel was already on his way with the word from God, a wonderful prophetic word, a profound word. It was a gospel word. It was a word that was going to tell about the coming of, of Christ. Gabriel was going to be a gospel preacher to Daniel on this occasion. And he showed up tired and fatigued and out of breath because the Lord said, Get there while you are yet praying. I will answer. And that's what happened in the case of, of, uh, of, of Daniel here. God at work before we pray, when we pray, as we pray, and as we finish our prayers. And then he said to him, You are greatly loved. He says this three times, two times more, by the way, in the book of Daniel. You are greatly loved. Now, I'm sure this was God's personal word to Daniel conveyed by Gabriel. And, but I don't think our application ends there. I think this was God's word to Daniel as a representative and as now the conduit of this information to the people of God. I think God wants us to know, wanted Israel to know especially that He still loved them. He's out of Egypt have I called my son. He says, Jacob, I have loved. When Israel was a baby, I carried him in my arms. I have drawn you with cords of love. These are the expressions from the Old Testament prophets. The love of God stands over all, and He wants us to know that whatever it is, He loves us. For God so loved the world that He gave, He sent His Son. And that's really what this message is about. This is really an Advent sermon. It's about the coming of Christ. What uh, Daniel is going to tell us is he's going to tell us about the chronology, something of a timetable to give the people a, an expectation of when to expect. This timetable worked itself out so well that by the time we get to Jesus, you remember there were some people in the temple that absolutely were, were waiting for the coming of Christ. Remember Anna there in the temple? when Jesus was brought there by His parents for His dedication. Remember Simeon? The old man of the Lord said, you're not going to die until the Messiah comes. And he was already an old man, but he had an expectation. And that's what the Lord wants with us to have. He wants us to know that He loves us, know that He keeps His promises, and know that He will surely bring it to pass.